0: My command is this love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known. To you you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Let's just take a moment and, and bow and ask, ask the Lord to... Help us as we consider this passage. Father, you're a great God. As we're reminded by Steve's words, you are still in control. Things don't always seem to go as we plan, but they always go as you plan. We thank you that we can rest in your sovereign care and control in our lives. We are grateful this morning, as we have already sung, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, We thank you now for these words that he has spoken that we can now read, consider, contemplate, and impress upon our own hearts and lives. We pray that you'd help us, that you'd rebuke us and change us where we need it, and that you would help us to be more like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're jumping in in the middle of John chapter 15, verse 9. Because verse 9 is a wonderful verse. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. The love of God is not a small thing to consider. The love the Father has for the Son is certainly a subject in which we could spend hours and hours and hours thinking about, looking at, studying, let alone the rest of the paragraph and the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book. We have countless hymns and songs written about the love of God. Poems, books, seminars, conferences, podcasts, sermon series, you fill in the blank. We have it all about the love of God. They're all trying to capture in some way what the love of the Father looks like. And when we read this verse, we should join in with the minds who have sought to answer that question. It's not a wrong thing to rehash an old subject. It's a good thing. What does the love of the Father for the Son look like? You ask a hundred people, and you'll probably get a hundred different answers. Not that that's wrong, but that there's a hundred different ways of describing God's love. It's a common question, but it's an important one, especially when we consider the following verses. There's certainly many ways in which we could describe the Father's love for the Son. You've probably already thought of some as we've been sitting here. It's perfect. It's infinite, it's unwavering, it's pure, it's holy, it's awe-inspiring, it's enduring, triune. It is, in one sense, utterly incomprehensible. You know the hymn that says, The love of God is greater far than any tongue or pen can ever tell. And I don't think the writer decided to pen those words to make you give up. He wrote those words because it is true because you really can't describe the love of God completely, fully. An infinite God means he has an infinite love. Infinite love means we'll never come to the end of it. Which is why we can say the love of God, the love of the Father specifically for the Son, is eternal. From eternity past to eternity future, the Father has loved the Son. In some sense, you cannot trace its beginning or end. You can't go back in history and ever find a point in time where the father started to love the son or where the son wasn't loved by the father. Our finite brains can't handle infinity. We can't handle eternity. But if we went all the way back, we would always find the father loving the son. A little later, in John 17, Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And before the creation of the world, there was no time. And that's a whole other subject I'm not going to get into because I don't even really understand it. But before time existed, before the world existed, the Father eternally love the son and if we understand the biblical teaching of the eternal perfect existence of the triune god and i'll throw this in here to understand and to have a complete comprehension of is not the same thing nobody has a complete comprehension of the trinity and the inner workings of the father son and holy spirit but we can understand it and if we're to understand that then we will understand that there was never a time when the son needed to become loved by the father because he's always been loved if there was ever a time the father did not love the son then we could not say that it was eternal and it would in turn destroy the biblical teaching the biblical definition of the trinity it would mess it up so is there a point in which we can say there it is there's there's the spot there's the time in history where the father did not love the son, or the the son fell out of the love of the father, because the most crucial time in history that we might think it might happen would have been at the cross. What about the cross? What happened there? Was the cross a moment in time when the father no longer loved the son? We sing that Getty hymn, "The father turned his face away." You remember that line? I believe that's in "How Deep the Father's Love." And, and, and we sing, The Father turned his face away from the Son. Is that what that hymn means? Is that what the Gettys are trying to tell us? That in turning his face away, the Father ceased loving the Son. Did the Father's love for the Son change? Did it decrease in intensity as the Son took on the full weight of sin on the cross? Surely, if there was ever a moment in time that would destroy this, it would have to be at the cross. But there's an important thing we need to remember about the cross, and that is is that it was not an accident. The cross, as presented in Scripture, is not an afterthought. It's not something that God tried to avoid at all costs, but sinful man kept getting in the way. Peter tells us in his sermon in Acts 2 that it was God's definite and deliberate plan that Jesus go to the cross. Peter says that the cross was God's idea. It wasn't a reaction, it was his action. It was the Father's purpose for the Son to go to the cross, and it was the Son's purpose to willingly go there. It was the purpose for the Son's first coming. That's why he came into the world to begin with, 2,000-something years ago, to go to the cross. The Father would not cease to love the Son if the Son was actively submitting himself to the will of the Father, not my will but yours be done, Father. And he would not cease to love the Son if he was fulfilling the purpose for which he came, the purpose for which the Father sent him. So the Son submits himself to the will of the Father and goes to the cross. But perhaps the Son would fall out of love, fall out of the love of the Father, if the Son was willing to go but not able to actually do what he was sent to do. He was willing to go, but not able to accomplish the Father's will. That is, not able to accomplish the purpose for which he was sent. And why was he sent? What was the reason for him going there? Yes, the cross, but what was the purpose behind the cross? He actually already told us earlier in the book, in John chapter 6. We've been doing the, the one-year Bible reading, so we've already read this. If you're keeping up, and if you haven't, don't worry, you'll get there. Chapter 6, verse 38 and 39, this is what Jesus says. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. It's really handy when the big questions that we've got are answered specifically. What was the purpose? What was, what was the reason? That I shall lose none. The son came to earth to save, not to lose. Everything the Father gives him, he saves and doesn't lose any. Do you take comfort in that? That if you are His, you will not be lost? Remember the words from Matthew chapter 1 Joseph being instructed in a dream by the Lord. He was instructed to marry Mary, Mary Mary. And uh, he's also instructed into what name he's supposed to give the child. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But how does he do that? How does Jesus save his people from their sins? Paul answers that in 2 Corinthians 5. He becomes their sin bearer. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The big question is there's all these different steps the purpose, the coming, the result. The big question is did it work? Because that sounds great and it sounds wonderful, but if it didn't work, it means nothing for us. And as Paul says, we above all people are to be pitied if it isn't true. Did it work? Did the Son accomplish the Father's will? The scriptures answer with a resounding and emphatic yes. When his work was completed, this is what the writer of the book of Hebrews says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Have you ever wondered why the son is presented as sitting after he ascends on high? He sits down because his work is complete. It is finished. In the cross, we have the son pursuing the will and accomplishing the will of the Father. We have the salvation of souls at the cross. So the one place we might expect to find the Son out of the love of the Father, or at a minimum, have the love decreased or changed or some some way altered, we actually see the Son fully approved, accepted, and loved because He was accomplishing what He was sent to do. This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me from eternity, as the Father has loved me without change, as the Father has loved me in a way that you can't possibly understand, I have loved you. In that way, you are loved by the Son. And before we go any further, we got a lot more to get to. But before we get any further, taking into account the Father's love for the Son and the work that the Son did on the cross on the behalf of sinners, reflect on the fact that Jesus tells his disciples he loves them as the Father loves him. And if you're a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ, he's talking to you. We can't get that. Because we can't quite get what the eternal, perfect Love of the Father for the Son really is. We can and we can't. We can get it, but we can't really comprehend and understand what an eternal love feels like and looks like. But we get that in Jesus when he gives it to us. Do you know what that means? To be loved by the Son as the Father loves him? As a follower of Jesus Christ, You cannot be more loved than you are right now. You can't get any more love from the sun. It's not like there's a love meter and a love gauge and the sun fills you up and, you know, at the end of your life you hope you're more full than you were when you started. Loved by Jesus Christ means you're loved to the maximum, to the full. You're really loved as a son, as as a follower of Jesus Christ do, do you know that do you know that that Jesus Christ loves you eternally this is what true love really is we 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 have this warped definition of what love is if you love somebody and they love you you kind of you scratch their back they scratch yours that's that's what love looks like, right? That's what our world has diminished love to be. Notice that Jesus does not say you will always feel like you're loved. That's, that's where we get that meter. I, I, I'm more full, I feel more loved today than I did yesterday or I feel like I'm walking closer to Jesus therefore his love is in some way changed because of what I do and how I feel and how I think. He doesn't say so I've loved you and therefore you will always feel loved and wonderful, and happy, and your life will be a walk in the park. He doesn't say that. In fact, the following verses, we, we finished at verse 17. Verses 18 to 25 are all about not feeling loved. They're all about being and feeling hated for Jesus' sake. But what Jesus is stressing is that that does not mean that your love In Christ that his love for you for his disciples has disappeared or been lost He puts that first and then puts the hatred part being hated by the world. He says remember this No matter what comes after my love for you does not change My love for you is still there. There's many valleys in life that we go through We don't feel so loved in those dark moments Right? Can anybody else attest to that? Anybody ever been through a rough time? And you fill in the blank at whatever stage of life you were at and whatever varying issue was going on in your heart, in your mind, in your life. We don't feel God's love. But remember this. If God's love didn't fail at the cross, the darkest possible valley anyone could ever possibly go through, if it did not fail there, it will not fail in your circumstances. It will not. As Paul says in Romans 8, and we all know these words, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a soft pillow to put your head down on at the end of the day. No matter where you are at in your walk with Jesus Christ, if you are His, you are loved you are loved by him i like how paul begins with death and then he lists all the other things for i am certain that death nor life nor angels nor really he could have just stopped at death death is in our minds the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to a human being right we associate what oh well at least you're still here right that was a close one but at least we survived Death is the ultimate, maximum, worst thing that we fill in for human experience. And Paul begins with that and then fills in the rest. He could have just stopped with death. Death isn't going to separate you from the love of Christ. So what, what possibly could? Nothing. Now, Jesus says, remain in my love. This is a love worth abiding in. This is a love worth remaining in. It's the only love, really, that's worth looking at, considering. It's the love worth residing in, taking up home in, wrapping yourself up in it. It's the love worth reminding ourselves of daily. Each and every day you get up and each and every day you go to bed. No matter how good of a day or bad of a day, the sun loves you. This isn't something to be considered over a coin toss. Is it a good decision to be in the son's love or not? Flip a coin, see what happens, make your decision based on that. That's, that's not the kind of love that it is. But how do you know if you abide in his love? If you're doing what he commands? Now, he hasn't given us a specific command yet. That's coming soon in the next verse. But abiding and obedience... Jesus links them together. They go hand in hand. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Jesus is our pattern for obedience. And obedience is what characterizes those who are in his love. That is, if you are a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ, you are loved by him and you do what he says. There's no middle ground. There's no... no There's no Christian, there's no follower of Jesus who isn't in his love, and there's no follower of Jesus who doesn't do what he says. That also means that if there is no obedience to his command, that tells you that you're not in his love and that you're not following him. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Because if your reaction to Jesus' words about obedience, commands, love. If your reaction to his words here is anything other than complete joy, that means you don't understand what he's saying. He tells us why he said these things. So that your joy may be complete. So that means if you have anything other than a reaction of complete and full joy, based upon what Jesus has just said, you're reading him wrong. Okay? You don't understand him. Jesus is not commanding these things. He's not communicating these truths to discourage, to confuse, to make you worry, to make you anxious. He's telling you these things so that your joy may be full. Which should tell you something about how warped our definition of joy is, right? Who thinks of obedience as joyful? Good, nobody put up their hand. I don't either. You're lying. <laughs> we don't naturally associate obedience with joy. We just don't. Our sinful nature. And we don't even have to blame our sinful culture, which is so often what we do in our 21st century church. We blame the culture. It, it, it's the liberal government and it's the people I work with and it's the TV and the stuff I see in the mall. It's all their fault that I do what I do. And they're the reason why I don't do things correctly. In some cases, that may be valid, but we don't even have to blame culture on this one. This is just, this is all on us. Our sinful nature has lured us into this delusion that joy is rooted in demanding obedience rather than obeying. It's in commanding rather than following commands. Do you agree that that's typically the way that we associate obedience? not enjoy it's it's more joyful to actually have other people do what i say than to follow through with what somebody else is telling me to do this delusion is ultimately traced back to the garden of eden in the garden there were two options there was obedience to god which resulted in communion with god and walking with him in the cool of the garden perfect life there was obedience and then there was disobedience which resulted in banishment from the garden Work actually becoming hard, and work is not a result of the fall. Work was instituted before the fall. The part that sin plays in work is that it's hard, and that it stinks, and that you sweat, and that the ground is rough. (sighs) Indwelling sin, no communion with God, being forced from the presence of God. That was the result of disobedience. And the struggle for power began and people have been fighting to be top dog ever since. People have been fighting to demand obedience from other people ever since that day. Sin has convinced us that any notion of obedience is a sign of weakness. Right? If you have to obey somebody else, it means that you're under somebody's authority. Therefore, you're not top dog. You're not, you're not the one in control. You're not the one who gets the final say in these things. Therefore, you're weaker than somebody else. But that's not the biblical definition and the biblical presentation of obedience. It's just not. We slip that in there because we have so many people in control and in power today that aren't worth following. And that's true. I will admit that. But that's not the biblical presentation of obedience. Jesus tells us his joy is ultimately rooted and grounded in his obedience to the Father. And for us to experience that same joy, it must be rooted in our obedience to the Son. It must be. It has to be. This means that doing what the Son says and what the Son commands... Now, now think about this seriously, because we don't often put obedience under this category... This means that doing what the Son commands is not dull and boring and lifeless. Okay? So many people look at the Bible and they go, look at all the things I can't do. Look at all the hard things that Jesus asks me to do. I can't do this. There's no way. That sounds boring. That sounds like no fun. I don't want to do that. But if it's resulting in joy, that means that we're wrong. (laughs) It means that you're wrong if you look at Jesus's jesus's commands and you think that that's boring because he's telling you that it's where true joy is found and here's the important thing when we come to a text like this when a truth like this is presented before us that joy is rooted in obedience in obedience to the son we should not go home and try to convince ourselves in our minds that this is true before we obey which is so often what we try to do okay i've, I've heard this that sounds good but let me work this through a little bit more, convince myself that this must be the way that I do things before I do it. That's what we do, right? What we should do is obey Jesus, and you'll find this to be true. If you obey, you will find that his words are true. We will have his joy, and it will be complete, full, maximum. Which who doesn't want a maximum experience of joy? You'd have to be stupid to not want that, right? Everybody wants a maximum experience of joy. Therefore, do what Jesus says. It seems so simple, and yet we struggle with that. And here we, we come to the next verse. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Here we see the pattern a little more clearly. The father loves the son. The son loves his disciples. And his disciples are to love one another the people around us. Now, this isn't talking about love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, which is a really, really tough verse to wrap your head around and then try to put into practice, right? That's one where we we struggle with and wrestle with and try to figure out what does Jesus actually mean to love my enemy? This is talking about our brothers and sisters, the people who are gathered around us today. Jesus says you need to love them, which... It's kind of sad that it's not natural, right? That Jesus has to actually tell us to do that. Which means that this is something that we struggle with. If we've been reading the book of John carefully, we should remember that Jesus has already said something similar in John 13. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Plain and simple. By this, that is your love for one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Every disciple of Jesus Christ is marked by their obedience to his command to love one another as he has loved them. If you don't love each other, if you don't have love for your brothers and sisters, and I know some of you are hard to love. I'm not saying you specifically. I'm saying there are Christians... We can all think of people who are hard to love, right? I know I'm one of them, so... (laughs) Oh dear, I shouldn't have said anything like that. But Jesus calls us to love each other. To look at each other as possessing eternal souls that will spend an eternity somewhere And if you can't get along here, you're going to be spending an eternity with each other in heaven. So you may as well start liking each other now. (laughs) Okay? It's not like you were going to get to heaven and -and so-and-so is not going to be there. We're all going to be there together. Yes, even the people from different denominations, are going to be there too. We may as well start liking them as well. We could take a lot of time to stop here and evaluate our own personal obedience to Jesus' words here. Do I love my brothers and sisters as Jesus loves me? It's certainly worth taking the time to do a self-evaluation. But I'll leave that for you to do in depth later. Look at Jesus' next words. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. In our evaluation of our love for one another, this verse becomes our standard in some sense, not in a complete and only sense. What is the greatest way you could show your love for somebody else? by giving your life for theirs, right? We can look at many examples in history of this happening. And we could use these examples to motivate and push us towards loving each other better. That's helpful, yes, but I think Jesus is pushing for a little bit more because you'd have to be absolutely daft to read this verse and not see Jesus in it. If we read that verse and go, okay, this is how I'm supposed to live, and that's as far as it goes. Love each other to the point of giving my life for somebody else, which quite frankly, uh, all of us are probably never going to be in that situation, right? We're so comfortable here. We're never going to be, most likely, unless something drastic happens, in a position where we need to do that. There are people around the world who are literally living this verse out. But you'd have to be really ignorant or maybe you're new to the Bible. But if you read that verse and you don't think of Jesus and his death on the cross, you're missing the point. There are many examples of people literally stepping in and taking the bullet for other people throughout history. It's happening right now. People are dying for the name of Jesus Christ. And there are others who are saving other Christians by taking the bullet People have been saved from physical death because of the actions of another dying in their place. But all of these examples, as heroic and amazing and inspiring as they are, they pale in comparison to the sacrificial death of the Son of God in the place of sinners. This should remind us about the love that Jesus has for his friends. Jesus gave his life for his friends. And you are his friend if you do what he commands. It's important to recognize that obedience is not what makes somebody a friend of Jesus. It's not what makes you his friend, as if in some way you can earn his friendship. Rather, his friends are characterized by their obedience to him. Jesus upgrades us from the slave-slash-servant status to friend What's the difference? We would typically put a big difference in there, right? What's the difference between being a slave and being a friend? Well, you fill in the blank, right? We, we, we know the difference, even if we don't know how to define it or describe it. But the difference between them is not that slaves must obey and friends don't have to. There's still obedience. Slaves must obey their masters and friends to Jesus must still obey him. The difference is knowledge. The difference is revelation. The difference is Jesus' communication to his friends. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus tells his friends stuff. Jesus tells us the plan. Jesus tells us what's going on. Jesus tells us where he's going. Jesus tells us the end. Ever read the book of Revelation? Jesus wins. If I can sum that up cheekily like that. Jesus comes back. Jesus wins. It's interesting. um, I wasn't sure if I was going to dive into this, but I think I will. Moses and Abraham are the only Old Testament characters In the entire Old Testament scriptures, they're the only two guys who are ever called friends of God. There's only two. And actually, as Steve's been walking us through the Old Testament, it's not so surprising with the amount of dirt bags that are kind of coming through in Israel's history, right? I mean, there's a lot of sleazy kind of guys that come through and are supposed to be the big leaders. Uh, If you're keeping up with the readings in 2 Samuel, David and... Bathsheba, he's supposed to be the man after God's own heart. And yes, it was great. It was an encouragement to hear the difference between David and everybody else. David never turned to anyone but God. Against you and you only have I sinned. But Moses and Abraham, not even David, no Elijah, no Adam. Moses and Abraham are the only guys who are called friends of God. And then think about this. Every single individual under the new covenant of Jesus Christ is called a friend of God. You have more privilege. You have more gifts. You have so much more than any Old Testament character ever had in Jesus Christ. No longer. In past times, God's people were not informed about the full plan of salvation, they weren't given all the details. But Jesus has revealed God's saving plan to his friends. Believe in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Kind of the summary of the plan. But we get that. Abraham didn't have that. Moses didn't have that. They didn't have Jesus. We have Jesus. Jesus reveals God's saving plan to his friends. We still obey. But we obey because we see what he's doing. There's no such thing as a blind, obedient Christian. Do you know that? Jesus has given us everything that we need to follow him completely with knowledge. That doesn't mean we get everything, okay? But, Ephesians 1 verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. It pleased God to give you knowledge. It pleased God to bring you into the know. We will definitely have things we don't understand, but that's why, as we read through John chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, that's why the Helper comes. That's why the Holy Spirit is sent. The Helper comes post-cross and resurrection. He's sent after the ascension of Jesus to help us understand what's going on. Meaning, if you have knowledge, if you understand anything scripturally, it's not because of you. Sorry to break that to you you if you know anything about Jesus Christ it's not because you're smart it's because you've been helped and we obey because of the love we have experienced and our experience or sorry our obedience is paired with the revelation of this mysterious will of God that he was pleased to give to us and because we are daft a lot of us are easily prone All of us are easily prone to pride and arrogance when we have more information than somebody else. I know something you don't. I still do that. (laughs) We still struggle with that. But Jesus says this to combat against that, to knock that idea right out of your head. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you. The disciple of Jesus is privy to information, privy to knowledge, not because you're wiser and smarter or better in any way than anyone else, or because you made all the right decisions and all the right choices. Here Jesus is knocking down any notion of pride. Any sense of, you think you got it all together, Jesus knocks that out completely. You do realize, of course, that you're not saved because you're smarter than anyone else. You did not come to Jesus because you're better than anybody else, because you had it all together altogether more than other people. You are not given the blessings of God because you're wiser or more talented than other people. You don't know Jesus and have a saving relationship with him because of anything inherent in you. You know Jesus on the basis of grace through faith and nothing else. Nothing else. If you think you're contributing anything to your relationship with Jesus Christ, you're wrong. I don't know how else to say that. You bring nothing to the table but your dirt and filth. Jesus brings everything else. You don't know anything because of who you are. You're given revelation, you're given the mystery of the will. Because he chose you. You have absolutely no grounds whatsoever for your pride and arrogance. We still have that, though, eh? We still have that pride that creeps up, or maybe it doesn't creep up, maybe it's just always there, that as Christians, we look down upon all the poor people of the world who who don't quite get it, right? All those... A co-worker, he's so close, but he's not quite there. Too bad he didn't know what I know. That would absolutely destroy any missional work. If you went into any kind of country, any kind of situation, thinking you have all the knowledge and you're going to enlighten all the people. Because you don't actually know that much. We don't actually know that much when we compare it to the infinite knowledge of God. It's, we're reminded by Jesus' words how sad it is and how easy it is to take the good gospel of Jesus Christ and turn it into a topic of boasting. Boasting about how much we know and how much somebody, does know, somebody doesn't know. That wasn't the purpose. That wasn't the point. You were not chosen so that your brain would be puffed up by your pride and knowledge. You were chosen specifically for a purpose, to go and bear fruit. What fruit? Fruit of the Spirit? We can all list that, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Certainly, of course. Are we supposed to bear that fruit? Are we supposed to be loving? Yes. Are we supposed to be joyful? Yes. Peaceful? Yes. Patient? Yes. These are all things that should mark Christians' If we're living by the Spirit, if the Holy Spirit has come and helped us understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, if we are living by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, then we should show signs that the Spirit of Jesus Christ lives within us. But I think Jesus has more in mind here. He says you were chosen to go. This is a, a missional statement, a missional purpose You've been given access to the divine plan. You've experienced the love of the Son. Revelation has been given to you. You know Jesus. You've seen Jesus. You've been redeemed, washed, justified. To what end? Your salvation? Yes. But also to go and bear fruit. That is to say, go tell other people. (laughs) Go talk about it. There can be no Christian who hears the good news, accepts the good news of Jesus Christ, and then sits on that good news to keep it for themselves. That Christian does not exist. Jesus is telling his disciples to go and extend the invitation. So here we'll pause for a moment and ask this question. Do you know Jesus? Have you seen your sin and the need of a Savior? Have you seen the life, the work, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus? Have you come to the foot of the cross and been washed by the blood of the Lamb? The invitation comes from the Sovereign Lord, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Have you put your faith in Jesus and in his saving work on the cross. If you have done that, do rejoice in that daily. Because you realize that if you're a Christian, you're a Christian because the disciples that Jesus was talking to in this immediate context did what he said. We are the fruit of their labor. And that verse says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. There are still people today coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We serve a great and awesome God. The love of God is great indeed, and the love of the Savior for his friends is indeed wonderful. Do you praise and adore your Savior for what he has done for you? Do you wake up and rejoice in that? That's the only reason to get out of bed is because Jesus loves you, because He has saved you and redeemed you. And do you love others because of the love you have experienced in Jesus Christ? Do you take what has been given to you and show it to other people? Now we could we could take hours and hours on what that looks like, the specifics, right? The the how, how do you love? your neighbor how do you love the person who's in the hospital how do you love the person who doesn't want help how do you, how do you, how do you love people how do you, how do you do that specifically we could take a long time doing that but i think the first question you have to ask how do i love this person lord how how do i how do i show love to this individual you start with his love for you and if it doesn't fall under that category you're not doing it right Jesus has loved you in a way that we can't fully, completely, absolutely comprehend, but it is a good love. It is a love worth sitting in and resting in and abiding in. It, it's a love worth praising Him for. It's a love worth retur- returning song and prayer and joy because of what He has given to us. Do you agree? We're going to ask the music team to come up and we are going to rejoice in the love of Jesus Christ for us, sinners saved by grace.